Hello and welcome once again to Wrestling Memories on Pioneer 90.1 FM. And don't forget, we stream our audio online, live into the masses. So you can check us out at radionorthland.org. And I know there were a lot of out-of-the-area listeners who have been tuning into the last few episodes, including last week's with uh, Steve Hall, a.k.a. Tom Rocky Stone. So you can listen live or you can listen to all of our episodes. Our over 10 years of Wrestling Memories are available there. You can connect, it'll connect you on the website to the Wrestling Memories page and to the SoundCloud page. So, yeah, you can download all the episodes from all of those years. Well, I'm here. Yes, I'm Glenn Broggett, along with my co-host down there deep in the heart of Texas. I do believe in our uh, pre, uh, in, uh, our pre-show pre conversation, he's enjoying uh, a trip back to the, uh, the mobile studio. Grizzle vet Mike McCurdy down there in Texas, my friend. What is the story? What is the scenario? What's going on with the uh, studio? It is the mobile studio, and it is a lovely 89 degrees right now. So, once again, wonderful weather in the great state of Texas. It has cooled down, though. The past week, it's been like anywhere from 100 to 105. So, I'll take 89 today. What's the peak number this year? Is it 105, or did it go past that? What has been the hottest so far? We, we, we've hit 105, but with that real feel at one point, it said we hit, it felt like 110. But, you know. Mm-hmm. Dry, dry heat, right? Yes. Yeah, very, very dry. With a hot wind. It's awesome. Not even like a nice cool breeze. Up here, up here in uh, Extreme Championship, Minnesota, uh, we've been having a, a lot of like. Uh, it, it's been very dry up here all summer, so it's almost like drought conditions. The only thing that's really growing is the corn, for whatever reason. I mean, I'm not, I'm not a an agronomist or anything, but uh, that's the, I've been seeing all th- all kinds of other things going slow except the, uh, that corn, but. Yeah, it's been interesting with the wildfires and the situations. Like today, I was telling you guys, uh, our guest and you, Mike, about the uh, the smell in the air having a weird, I guess, resemblance to the scent of Windex. So I hope this isn't the end of days or, or something, or, or, or I don't know, maybe it's the National Cleanup Day in Thieferber Falls, but it's got some Windexy vibes today, man. It, it's the next variant of the coronavirus that's now spiking all over the U.S. So. Oh, we're going to try not to uh, think too much about that because, <laughs> gosh, Mike, Mike, we already had enough as far as the pro wrestling business as of this recording. There's been like ah, just unfortunate deaths all over the industry. It seems like in the last week or even the last couple of days here of this recording, we've lost a lot of uh, really uh, names in, in the business and offspring of a pro wrestler who is a big name uh, of the past yes unfortunately just in the last two days man we lost jody hamilton obviously the assassin we lost burt prentice very well known in the uh, memphis area and unfortunately you know like we were talking i went to bed this morning at around 1 30 in the morning with the unfortunate news of the passing of uh, beautiful bobby eaton Mm-hmm. So been very sad, and I guess uh, Ted Lewin passed away July 28th, so probably within like last week. And then, of course, as you mentioned, offspring and I, we had the unfortunate uh, death of uh, the son of uh, B. Brian Blair. So mm-hmm. it's been a rough like couple weeks for the wrestling industry, and just a rough couple days. Well, you know, just three major names. Yeah, exactly, and of course, uh, with the passing of Brett Blair too, and uh, you know our you know our condolences to uh, uh, Brian and his family uh, during this time. Uh, yeah, I mean, 
thinking about I, I got that message because I woke up at 2 a.m. because I get ready to go get my work routine going. I'm, I'm an early uh, riser. And I saw that the Bobby Eaton news, of course, uh, there was news about Bobby being in and out of the hospital recently. And of course, in recent years, Bobby has had some some health trouble. And uh, just recently, uh, well, it, the, his wife passed away. And, you know, that's not too an easy thing to go through. But Bobby's so young. I mean, and what a talent. This was a guy that we probably, you probably think he's older than his age because he was in the business, what, broke in in his te- early teens. Uh, I mean, he was quite young yeah. when when he broke in. Bobby and, the, the you know, working uh, in, with, you know, Bobby had some, is, is the consummate tag team guy. From even from the early days of, of working with, with George Goulas. You know, and until, you know, his, his, the jet set to, you know, working with, uh, oh gosh, he worked with Coco Beware. I mean, he's, we he worked with, you know, of course, Dennis Condry and Stan Lane and uh, many others. Arn Anderson, the list goes on and on. But the, my favorite. Lord Steven Regal. Yeah, Lord, I was just going to say, well, one of the things I was watching a few weeks ago, I was just watching some uh, 95 WCW and the whole uh, making uh, the My Fair Lady may, uh, male version of Bobby Eaton getting turned into, uh, you know, this this gentleman, this this, you know, this refined dude. But. So sad to see Bobby go. He, he definitely, you never, there's rarely ever do you hear a story about Bobby Eaton that has any negative connotation in the pro wrestling business. It seems like he's always, was always the guy. He was like almost a go-to guy whenever somebody needed something. Bobby was just a road warrior who knew how, you know, the, you know how, how to keep a, hit, a great survival kit on the road. He was just a guy that survived and, you know, it's just so sad to see him go so young. Definitely. Uh, age 62, his, his, I'm reading more now. His daughter found him uh, Wednesday night, so and she just lost her mother just a little over a month ago. Yeah. I kind of equate Bobby Eaton kind of. I'm I'm kind of equating it to Johnny and June. You know, his wife passed, and you know, a month later, Bobby. You know, it's it's kind of like that case of the broken heart, and you know, he he's back with his wife. So mm-hmm. you know, you, you kind of look at it that way. But yeah, a great talent in the ring. Nobody had anything bad to say about Bobby. My Facebook feed, Twitter feed, everything is full of just stories about how great he was, how talented he was, what a great guy he was, how nice he was. You know, I got to interview him, oh, probably 2015, I got the chance to interview him. And he was so humble because you would ask him, you know, oh, about this and that. And he's just like, oh, you know, it was just what I did. And he didn't like talk about himself. He wanted to like push everybody else. Mm-hmm. You know, he wanted to talk about the people he got to wrestle against. He didn't want to talk about, you know, himself. He's a very humble guy in that interview. Mm-hmm. And yeah, definitely a loss to the uh, the industry. And I'm a fan of the Jim Cornette experience. And I think this week's episode is, is going to be hard to listen to. Because I'm sure Jim is going to have, you know, a lot to say. And I'm sure it's going to be very hard on him because, you know, he was very instrumental in Bobby's career with the Midnight Express. So, mm-hmm. you know. And condolences, of course, to, to Bobby and his family, and also uh, to, of course, his father-in-law, superstar Bill Dundee. That's a thing that the, the In the Know fan mm-hmm. knows about, but not everybody who's just a general fan really really knew that sort of story. But yeah, was, when I first discovered it, I, it, I kind of turned my head a bit. But, you know, Bobby, we lost Burt Prentice, of course, talking about Memphis and that area, Burt. And, you know, of course, in the days of Christopher Love, where he managed, uh, Tully Blanchard. Yep. Uh, you know, and he also uh, did some managing at, with with in the LPWA as well. He and you know, great. He gets a 
he has a very checkered career as far you know promoters that's just the kind of the, the way of the road but uh he definitely had uh, made his mark and contributions in the pro wrestling business but another big loss and another big mind uh, a guy that uh, went back to those old school last of the territory days oh yeah and, and was still promoting uh, i guess monday he had made a post about that i think was it his wife was going to be handling like some of the the office duties for so he was still working. He was still promoting up until, and then, you know, he passed away. Just amazing. Yeah. I hadn't heard that name in years, but so I was really surprised to find out that he was still active in the business. And, mm-hmm. you know, as soon as I heard the name, I obviously, you know, remember from the Memphis area, but yeah, still working. Yeah. And you know what? For Jody Hamilton, I mean, I recommend pick, people picking up Scott Teal's book that he put out, that Ham- Jody put released, uh, Assassin. That is a fantastic book. Uh, great career, of course, his son, uh, Nick Patrick, longtime referee. Was a wrestler previous, but in knee injuries that led him to be uh, a pretty well-known referee in WCW. Uh, and another big loss. But we uh, have to get our guest in because we, we are talking about the doom and gloom. we got to bring in our guest uh, and... Mike, I'm going to let you do the honors to open things up this week because you uh, pick, picked up uh, and got this uh, guy, penned the paper, got him to a deal. And I remember, I was thinking of this, I remember, I know his name, and I was looking, I'm like, yeah, I've read the, the Bugsy McGraw book he helped put together. I, I remember the Dan Severn book, and uh, I really, really enjoyed those books. So, Mike, uh, kudos to you for getting our guest today, and I'm going to let you uh, handle it. Take the, Take the wheel, my friend. All right, I'm very glad to have booked uh, this week's guest. Like you said, had to get pen to paper and all that and get him to sign the contract. There was a few little deals we had to make. But, uh, <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Um, no, you're right, though. Uh, Bugsy McGraw, Brute Power. I'm just starting to read that book. Uh, I just received a copy of it. And so far, I'm, I'm really enjoying it. He also wrote or helped write the uh, the Hornswoggle book. Oh, yeah, that's uh, a great Life read, Life is too. short and so am I, you know, another, really? which is one of my favorite books as far as, like, new releases go. I was I was pleasantly, I was was pleasantly surprised by that, Mike. That was one of those books I, I, I was curious to get. I think I got it on Kindle, and I started reading, and it was one of those, you know, once you get in locked into a book, you know, like an hour passes by and you're still reading. That was kind of what happened with, uh, with Dylan's book. Yeah, same with me. I, I read it in a day. That was like a one day read for me. I just, I didn't want to put it down. It was, it was a fascinating story. And, uh, part, part of the, the deal with the guest here is he might be able to help us get Hornswoggle as a future guest. That's a little bit later down the road, but you know, we need to bring our guest on this week to talk about just, you know, his books and what he's doing, how he got in the business. So let's welcome to this week's guest, Mr. Ian Douglas. Ian, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, guys. It's a pleasure to be on the show. Well, thank you for joining us. Uh, we've been talking a lot with uh, authors and all that recently. Dan Murphy, last week we had uh, Tom Rocky Stone, who's released his autobiography. We've had David Dwinell, Matman. And like I said, you know, you wrote Brute Power, the story of Bugsy McGraw. I've just started reading it so far, just fascinated. I'm about 50 pages in. Uh, you wrote the Hornswoggle, you helped write uh, the Hornswoggle book, which, like we just said, one probably one of the better titles of the new biographies that have come out, but you know, for our listeners and well, for Glenn and I also as well, you know, how did you get involved, uh, just kind of in the wrestling business and just kind of, how did you get started working on the the different books and all that? Okay. Well, I will start that story at a very precise point. And if you want me to go into greater detail, you can let me know. I was writing SEO content for the West Michigan sports commission I started out with uh, an interview of Kurt Angle, who I'd met during a previous career. I interviewed uh, Angle with regard to wrestling workouts. I interviewed 
Paz with regard to judo. I interviewed Diamond Dallas Page with regard to yoga-based workouts. And then I solicited and got Dan Severn with regard to, it was either wrestling or combat-based workouts. And during our conversation, it, it fascinated me that I really only needed to speak with him for about 20 minutes. And he just stayed on the phone with me for, I think, an hour and 20 minutes. And he was, he was very effusive with the content. And I just logged away that, man, if, if someone could get him on the phone for 14 or 15 conversations like that, they would probably have a book's worth of content. Well, Dan stayed in touch with me. And he casually mentioned during one of our conversations that he would like to work on a book. And I told him that if he gave me an hour to an hour and a half a day for two weeks, then I could assist him with that. And that's really how I got started with the realest guy in the room, um, the life and time of Dan Severn. Now, as far as the writing, of, um, you know, you mentioned Taz and Diamond Dallas. Were you a, were you a wrestling fan? Did, did you watch professional wrestling? Was this something you were into or, you know, were the interviews just based off through, you know, what you were doing? Oh, okay, so that's that's why I said I was going to start a precise point, and then we could back up. I've been okay. a colossal pro wrestling fan since I was seven years old, but I grew up in the Metro Detroit area in a post chic, post NWA territory era. My introduction to pro wrestling came via syndicated World Wrestling Federation shows on the weekend and watching Randy Savage drop elbows on people when I was about seven years old. Of course, living in Metro Detroit, you had a whole hubbub with, related to the WrestleMania three event. And yeah, that was how I really got started in professional wrestling. The Kurt Angle introduction came much later. I was working with an exercise equipment manufacturing company. I heard the Arnold Festival. That's Arnold Schwarzenegger Sports Festival in Columbus, Ohio. He had some. We were selling some equipment that he wanted, and I made the deal to travel to his house and shoot some footage with him there in exchange for the equipment. So I uh, I got to to hang out with Kurt in his basement while he worked out. I got to uh, see his authentic gold medal. I got to take a photo with him in his office. Put the while he put the ankle lock on me, I got to uh, sit on his steps and wait for my Uber to come pick me up while his wife handed me a cupcake and his dog by and let me pet her while I waited. So that was, uh, even that alone was a dream experience for a lifelong pro wrestling fan. But then when I get got into the SEO content production and I needed to reach out to somebody, Kurt had been a friend since that point. So I said, hey, Kurt, would you mind helping me out and let and letting me interview you for this. And he said, yeah, absolutely. Once that interview was in place, it was a lot easier to reach out to folks like DDP and Taz and say, hey, I've already done this interview with Kurt. Here's a link to the content. Would you be interested in doing something similar? And then we just went from there. Now, as a wrestling fan, you know, you're, you're growing up, you said, you know, huge uh, wrestling fan, Detroit area and all that. Um, when did writing come into, come into play? Uh, for you a long time, you know. I graduated from University of Michigan um, way, way, way back, 2001. 
Uh, then I graduated from the Spex Howard School of Broadcast Arts, and then I got a master's degree in editorial journalism from Northwestern. Uh, from there, I was a reporter for NBC News in Flint. Even when you're, when you're participating in Northwestern's program that's in the Bill School of Journalism, at least back then, um, we wrote for a news service owned by the school, and the articles could be picked up for publication by a few different um, a few different publications in the Northwest Indiana and uh, Southern or Southeast Chicago, just general Chicagoland area. If you wanted to isolate a point in my life when I really got started writing, that was it. When you were growing up and watching wrestling, did you read the wrestling magazines? Did you get the uh, the newsstand magazines like most all of us did? Not really. Once I discovered that wrestling was predetermined, that didn't cause my fandom of pro wrestling to, to subside, at least not to a significant extent. But it became very difficult to read the publications that were taken that 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 were written from a a serious standpoint. Um, yeah, it just became very difficult to take those seriously. So no, I never really read them. Okay, because uh, for me, you know, I've been doing a historian thing. I've done a lot of writing work, and I discovered the magazines, and that's how I went, wait a minute, I can, I can write about this. I can write about wrestling, and I thought, for me, I thought that was fascinating that you know, I could actually write about wrestling. That's why I was wondering where, where the point came where you realized, you know, hey, I can write about wrestling, and it sounds like it was with uh, Severn and you know, Angle and those guys, so... Well, okay. Actually, I'm I'm glad you I'm glad you asked that question. So that knowledge precedes, or, or that ability precedes writing with with Angle and Severn and those guys, because one of the things they they taught us in journalism school. Although I'm sure if you write for any publication, um, even outside of journalism school, they'll teach you the same thing. Is that once you have the authority of a publication behind you. You can pretty much call up whomever you want or contact whomever you want and ask them whatever you like. When they assigned me, when they assigned me sports and entertainment as a beat when I was at Northwestern, I said, okay, great. Um, well, let's see. Is there any wrestling in the area I could cover? And Windy City Wrestling was still operating in Chicago at the time, and I used the license that was afforded me to contact Windy City Wrestling and go uh, attend a few shows. Uh, I, I met Larry Zabisco that way. I met AJ Styles that way. And I met Abyss that way. But that was, that was the first time I was able to write about pro wrestling with any semblance of authority was when I covered uh, Windy City Wrestling back in 2005. Well, let's talk about that for a minute because, you know, Windy City Wrestling is not a name that comes up a lot with other people, but you know, it, it had its, it had its time. And I'll let, uh, I remember watching it like on a satellite feed, but you would find it, but you know, what was it, what was it like working with and writing about windy city wrestling? Cause like I said, not a lot of people, it doesn't get the attention that maybe it deserves. Um, it was fun. I wasn't there that long. I mean, I, I wasn't in Evanston or Chicago that long. And this was certainly after what, what might've been considered a heyday of Windy City Wrestling. It was, mm -hmm. it was certainly a very unique experience being allowed behind the curtain for the first time. And one of the things about it that was kind of funny was that they, 
some of the guys are seeing me and say, oh, there's a member of the press here. We have to keep it we have to keep it kayfabe. And some of the other guys were like, oh, come on. Everybody knows that it isn't legitimate anymore, so you don't have to do that. It was, it was a very interesting time to be covering an, an independent wrestling promotion. Now, how did you deal with that? Because I know in my work, you know, especially now being out here in Texas, you know, I've gone to talk with guys like, you know, Black Bart and Johnny Mantell. And when you first talk to them, they're especially Bart, especially Bart. Uh, they're very guarded. They don't want to quote, let you in because, you know, you're an outsider, you know, it's, they still believe in K-Babe to them. It's still real. You know, how did you go about breaking that, that barrier and actually getting them to accept you? I don't necessarily, well, it was, it was easier than you might think, uh, simply because, you know, I, I said, I said, hi to Larry Zabisco, uh, talked to him very briefly and I'm, I mean, really, the extent of it was like living legend. I didn't recognize you when I first saw you. How are you doing? Hey, here's my notebook. Would you mind signing it? And, and that was the extent of it, and he was a very nice guy. But in, as far as the guys who I mostly spoke to, that would have been Acid Jazz, that would have been Steve Boz, guys who were about the same age as I was. And anything that, anything that I could do to be drawing attention to the promotion and to be drawing individual attention to them they were they were all for it so it it didn't take much for them to accept me at all you were lucky i I, i've had to break a lot of barriers getting through to because i was always the the kid from california wanting to talk about texas so they were a little guarded with me but uh you know over over time you know i I think i I think i want them over so (laughs) yeah i i I think it helped again i'm I'm, i don't know what i don't know what publication you might have been writing for but Going in and saying, hey, I'm, this has the potential to get picked up in the Chicago Defender because they had their urban offshoot promotion. Um, I think it was called like some urban wrestling, something along those lines was that offshoot. Um, but go, going in and being able to say, hey, this, this has a very good chance of getting picked up by the Chicago Defender, and it was. Um, so will you allow me to cover your promotion with that sort of a lead in They're They're highly inclined to say yes. Um, in fact, I think my, the end of the year special before we moved on to DC, the, the end of the year special that we put together, the Medill report special that we put together. Um, my five minute feature segment was, on Acid Jazz, who was a school teacher by day and an aspiring professional wrestler by night. And going to them and saying, hey, I have this opportunity. It's going to be on Chicago Public Access Cable. Would you mind if I did this, I, um, I put this feature together on Acid Jazz? And they said, yes, absolutely. Because uh, when you're offering them any sort of free promotion, why would they turn it down? Well, exactly. I I got in and started writing right about the time the these you know mail by mail the dirt sheets were starting to kind of wane down and the internet was picking up and so I was doing a lot of writing for uh, uh, AOL like you know sites and other websites and all that so a lot of freelance stuff is what I was doing so and then I started doing research as far as Texas goes for a book project that I've been working on for years and uh, so that's kind of where I got my start in it. You actually had the, uh, the the journalistic the journalism portion over there, so you might have a little more credibility than uh, me at the time. But uh, 
anyways, um, actually, talking about your writing, you, you go into, yes. I was going to say, actually, at this stage, I think having a, a journalist, a journalism pedigree actually affords me less credibility than you have. So don't, don't be too hard on yourself. Oh, uh, okay. <laughs> Anyways, um, getting into the, the writing, you start working on a book, uh, you know, Dan Severin mentions he's interested in a book and you start working with that on him, with him on that. Um, how was the process of that and getting to work with Dan Severn? And you said you were talking to him like an hour and a half a day. Uh, what was the process of putting together, you know, the, the, the first book? Uh, the process was me getting up early in the morning, going to a local coffee shop, uh, sitting down, calling him up, having a set of questions that I was prepared to ask him and just letting the conversation, letting the conversation flow from there. That was that was really the process going back and during my free time transcribing the interviews and then trying to then trying to piece everything together after each of our individual interview segments was over with. And but then also at the very end, just trying to put it together in a book format as best I could um, and hoping to God that I knew what I was doing and that the finished product would be a good one. Now, as the subject goes, how was Dan Severn as far as just being open about, you know, everything in his career and his life and all that in regards to the book? Oh, uh, tremendous. Anything that you could, any, anything that you wanted to know, he would tell you. But you also get the sense, uh, a lot of, some rest, certain wrestlers are freer with the dirt than others. And Dan takes himself very seriously as an athlete. And we can talk about the differences between writing, working on Dan Severn's book and working on Hornswoggle's book and Bugsy's book and Brian Blair's book. Uh, but with regard to Dan, it's a, it has a very different feel to it and the conversations have a very different feel to it because Dan was essentially a world-class athlete when he was in high school. When he was a... When he was a junior in high school, he went undefeated. When he was a senior, he set out to set the national pin record. He, he did set the national pin record for, by, by pinning all of his opponents that year and pinning every single one of his opponents in under a minute. He was the most highly recruited wrestler out of high school that year. Of course, the um, Arizona State University invented their not not the obviously not the Arizona State wrestling team, but they invented their adjunct wrestling club program for him uh, simply to give simply to provide him with greater training opportunities. And then of course he was a multi-time NCAA All-American, and then he went on to have a a stellar amateur wrestling career beyond that. So. It's when you're dealing with someone with that sort of pedigree and then obviously getting into his, his UFC fight, there's just a different, the, the focus is on the real competition and the real training and how that applies toward being able to legitimately take somebody down and choke them out. Whereas most of the other wrestlers are focused far more on the behind the scenes uh, elements of the business, if that makes sense. When you were talking with Dan, he's telling you the stories on that. Were there, yeah, cause I've heard of this. Were there some stories where he was telling you and then he would say, okay, we can't put that in the book, you know, cause 
for any certain reason, because I've seen with other authors that tends to kind of come up a lot with books is they want to tell you the stories, but then they say, okay, we can't, we can't put that in the book. So with Dan, no, but I will say that in, with dealing with Dan as compared with other wrestlers, the, the atmosphere and the tone of the conversation was different. And you got the sense that maybe you might offend him simply by asking, simply by asking certain types of questions. So there were some places that we, that Dan and I just didn't go in terms of the direction of the conversation. Whereas with, with other with other interview subjects, they'll lead you right to that area because they're dying to talk about it. I'm definitely going to have to pick up a copy of this book. This is one that's, I've seen it, but it's just not one that's been added into my library. But when you were done with the book and you got the finished product, what was Dan's uh, impression of it when, with the, uh, the, the finished uh, items? Dan was happy with the finished product. Uh, as far as I could tell, there wasn't a whole lot of discussion as to what should be added, what should be eliminated. Uh, it was, it was very short, sweet and to the point. We had a, we had a few hour conversation to go over the edits that he wanted made. And then he said, okay, that's it. We're done. That's the book. And how, what was the initial reaction from uh, the readers and all that about it? The initial reaction from the readers was quite positive. I don't recall there being many negative impressions. There were a, I, I don't mind admitting at this point, there were a lot of typos in the book, um, probably still are, if that hasn't been amended. And that is owed to some miscommunication with uh, the editor who was handling that. But, you know, my name's on the cover, so I'll take the blame for that. Um, aside from concern, although, okay, I say all of that to say, aside from criticisms about the typos, which I will gladly own, uh, the, rece the reception to the book was overwhelmingly positive, uh, except for people who think that Dan sounded uh, bitter and made excuses with regard to his a few of his performances, including one against Ken Shamrock. All right, I'm going to pass the mic over to Glenn now. I'm sure he's got a few questions for you. Well, thanks, yep. uh, Mike. Uh, and this has been really interesting listening to you guys uh, talk uh, on this edition of Wrestling Memories with our guest author, Ian Douglas. And Ian, uh, it was uh, December 2019. I was I spent the week uh, with my wife in Phoenix, Arizona. She had a, a conference and some of the downtime uh, where we were staying, I brought along a, a couple of books, and one of those books was Brute Power, the autobiography of Bugsy McGraw, and I, I, I read that thing. It was it was such an enjoying, inter, enjoying, very entertaining experience. I really learned so much about this uh, wrestler because when I when I thought about Bugsy McGraw, I came up I, in the early '80s, started watching wrestling, and. For me, seeing Bugsy was in the, the latter period of, uh, you know, working for the NWA. And I, I, I saw some of his stuff in World Class in the 80s, too, thanks to the legends of World Class. But this book really was something else. And it was just a fascinating uh, look and a real fascinating guy whose story I was not familiar with. But after reading about him, it made me go back and watch some of his stuff and read a little bit about some of the other things in his, during his career in some of the old After magazines. Uh, I want to know, because you... You grew up, uh, you were in, you know, late 1980s, you got into the wrestling, you know, started watching, were a fan. Uh, at this point, uh, what happened, you know, we're going to bring you to the point when you decided to get involved with Bugsy McGraw, but 
How did this all happen? Because uh, Bugsy wasn't a guy that you would see on the superstars of wrestling, but how how did you guys get connected? Let's just tell the story because this was a great book. How did you get in touch with, with Bugsy McGraw, and uh, how did you guys get this book really off the ground? Oh, man. That is a... That is a long and boring story, and and here it is. Um, <laughs> when I was when, when I was in the latter stages of working on Severn's book, I didn't have a publisher lined up. I didn't know the first thing about how to get one, and I was I was doing research online, looking to see who I could contact about actually getting this published. I reached out to uh, Kenny Bevin, popularly known as Kenny Casanova who has written, who has assisted in co-authoring a bunch of pro wrestlers. Kenny got back to me, and I owe Kenny almost everything. He has been a fantastic resource and asset to my writing career and in, in advising me and also, frankly, teaching me how to do some things that have saved me a fair amount of money along the way. I just I I maintained contact with Kenny and I was I was sitting at home one day and Kenny contacted me out of the blue and he said Bugsy McGraw is interested in writing a book. I have way too many things I'm working on right now. He was still working on Vader's book, he was still working on Sabu's book, and he was still working on Brutus Beefcake's book. And he said he asked me if I would mind assisting Bugsy with the writing of his book. And I said, let me get back to you on that. Let me look at a few things. I, I happened to be half Bahamian. The first wrestling show I ever attended was in Nassau Stadium in 1989. And it was it was 89 or 90. I think it was 89. But it was, the, the main event was Dusty Rhodes against um, Big Steel Man, a.k.a. Fred Ottman, in a last man standing match. That's actually the first time I was even made aware of who Dusty Rhodes was, um, as embarrassing as that is to say. But I've been working, speaking of working on uh, books for several years, Mike, uh, I've been working on a history of pro wrestling in the Bahamas book since early 2018, and that should hopefully be finished by the middle of 2022. But I, I, I mentioned all of that to say that I looked up Bugsy's career. I saw how active he was in the Florida Territory, saw that he had several matches in the Bahamas, and also saw that he got his early career start in the Detroit Territory, owned by the Sheik, um, long before I was born. And I just felt that going through all of that would be entertaining for me because I'd be getting to ask the questions that a Detroiter and a Bahamian would want to know about these two territories having never experienced them personally. And it's some really interesting stuff in the book too, uh, from what I can remember uh, from, from reading it uh, about two, oh, it's been almost two years now, but I can still remember some of the stuff uh, in the book uh, as far as uh, Bugsy and, and his career, and yes, you mentioned uh, uh, Michigan and working for the Sheik and and breaking in as the the big O. And and near and around that time too, another th- a pass, fascinating passage in this book was 
he, uh, he got a chance uh, to wrestle the inspiration for the fugitive, the guy by the name of Sam Shepard. And that guy's always, he's kind of been a fascination to many, uh, not only, uh, you know, in, in the world of uh, true crime, but also uh, in pro wrestling uh, for his, his finisher and just being in the business, getting out of jail after all of that, uh, going through all of that. That stuff was really fascinating. He was able to be, uh, you know, start up his career and be wrestling these interesting personalities and of course all of the th- the things that go with being in the territories and being a traveling wrestler because in the book you know he he didn't just come out and say hey it's going to be Bugsy McGraw no it was my story of how Michael Davis found his way through the business and uh, the stops and the names along the way are, are just so so interesting yes um there was there was never any reason for me so i'm i am not a i'm not a wrestling historian um, I'm not a historian. I'm certainly not a fan who has required himself to be, be knowledgeable of every single wrestling tour ter- territory that ever existed. That that just that just hasn't been the nature of my fandom. So there was never any reason for me to look into uh, the wrestling territory in Vancouver. There was certainly never any reason for me to look into what was going on in Australia. And so just having him act as a tour guide, taking me through these territories and who was, who was there, who he worked with, uh, the story of Jim Barnett essentially blackmailing him, uh, saying, I'm going to make sure that I'm, I'm going to blackball you if you bail on my Australia territory right now and, and take off for Hawaii. And then... Barnett soliciting the services of a prostitute to ensure that uh, Bugsy, as I believe he was the brute at that point, um, would remain in the territory. That was all. That was all fascinating stuff to me, and I always consider the co-authoring duty to be a privilege because I get to ask all of these questions and hear all of these stories before anyone else. Um, and in some cases before anyone else has ever heard any of these stories. And I just approach it with the appreciation of a wrestling fan. And what was it like dealing with, with Bugsy? Uh, was he, uh, once you guys started to talk and start to ask, you started to ask your questions, was it something that he opened up rather instantly or was it something that you had to kind of work and work and, and until he finally found his comfort zone? Oh, Michael, Michael opened up. Michael opened up almost immediately. Um, I think most of these guys get the sense, um, and, and this, is, this is by no means intended to toot my own horn, um, I, le- I legitimately care about the finished product. I legitimately care about these guys getting to tell their story the way they want it. And I, I want to give them an opportunity to give an accurate representation of their careers and cast themselves in the best light possible and a lot of the a lot of these wrestlers uh, these old school wrestlers tend to be very big on respect and i think they can sense who is being honest and truthful and respectful with them and who isn't and i i got the sense that michael could detect that i was primarily interested in making sure he got immortalized in literary form in 
in a fashion that he would be proud of and that his, he would be happy with his friends and family members reading about. Mm-hmm. And another thing, too, I really, uh, it was something, again, I got to learn about was his post-pro wrestling years and uh, some of the things that he, he worked with, and including, uh, you know, in his prime, you know, leaving the business to become a registered nurse and how pro wrestling kind of came back into the equation, uh, a, a fellow uh, locker room compatriot. He, you know, in his last days, Bugsy was able to kind of tend to Jack Briscoe. So that was another interesting angle of how his old profession mixed in with his current profession at that time. Yes. And you have to be, you have to be very careful the way you balance those elements of the book out. Um, you're never going to be able, it, it's absolutely impossible to make everyone happy. There are, there are people who are going to say, because um, I think the book is somewhere in the neighborhood of 315 to 320 pages long. And there are people who would say, well, if he has, if he has more than five pages, or in some cases, more than two pages on his career as a registered nurse, that's too many. I'm only interested in hearing about the wrestling. Well, fine, but this is primarily the story about his life, and that his career as a nurse took up a huge chunk of his life. That was, that was 20 years, and there was some wrestling interspersed with that, too. Uh, and you also have people who would say, um, I've, I've, seen comments from some, I've seen comments from some atheists who have said, well, he, he gets all Jesus-y in the book. And I think I, I think I looked up total religious references out of 315 to 320 pages, and I think it's something like three pages, um, not including his acknowledgement section. A very, a very small percentage of the book deals with that material. It was important to him, so of course it got included, but... Uh, even that, a, a single religious reference to some people is going to be considered too much. You know what? You have to shrug your, you have to throw up your hands, shrug your shoulders, and simply say you, you can't please all the people all the time. It's the only thing you can do in that instance. I mean, uh, I first heard about this book project. I, I it was through a mutual friend. Was through uh, Barry Rose, of course, who has a fantastic uh, podcast mm-hmm. with uh, uh, the Booker Jeffrey Baldron. Uh, that and I thought that that was a very. I mean, I, you were talking about this book, and that that's what really kind of locked me in. Uh, having guys too like like Barry Rose, uh, you know, not only does he do the you know the the, the podcasting stuff. There's a lot to him because in, in, in regards to his love for pro wrestling and uh, the, his love for the legends of the wrestlers down in f- the state of Florida, because Barry has a, a pretty pretty prominent role of, of helping to get these guys together, whether it be a, a, an autograph weekend or you know some luncheons and stuff. So th- those are some of the things that uh, Bugsy takes part in still to this day. So how important is that even? To to have that equation of guys like Barry Rose who are so respectful of the business. Barry has been a phenomenal asset. Um, he eschews the title historian, although he he absolutely deserves it. He is the most knowledgeable person I'm aware of with regard to the history of the Florida Territory. And there are cases, there have been several cases where um, 
know, I'm I'm trying to think of an I'm trying to think of an example that I can use without giving too much. Into, okay, I'll I'll use this example um, with regard to uh, Brian's forthcoming book, uh, Brian Blair. Brian mentioned in the book, and I'm not giving too much away, that the that when he was growing up in Florida, the Florida Heavyweight Championship was the most significant championship in the territory. And it meant everything for him to win it. And I'd always had the understanding that the Southern Heavyweight Championship was the most prominent championship and most meaningful championship in the Florida Territory. So rather than simply type up something on Brian's behalf that I was uncomfortable with, I went straight to Barry and said, hey, Barry, Brian said this. Is this true? And Barry said, Brian is correct up until about 82, 83 or so. The Florida Heavyweight Championship was the most significant, was the most significant championship in Florida. So just having, having the perspective of somebody who was there and somebody who studied this forever, if, if nothing else, it certainly helped to put my mind at ease. Um, that the content that I was putting out there in Brian's voice was truthful. Because I'm, I don't want to, uh, I don't want to let anything go unchallenged if I can, if I can help it that I'm not comfortable with. Because the last thing you want is a wrestling fan reading the book and saying, "Oh, well, this guy was in the territory, but he has no idea what he was talking about." Because there are some people who will take on error and say, well, he got this wrong, so now you can't believe him about anything. So you want to you just do your best to make sure that every fact and every tidbit is as accurate as possible. This is Wrestling Memories with our guest author, Ian Douglas, and I'm going to bring uh, the grizzled vet Mike McCurdy back into the conversation uh, to uh, finish up uh, this edition with a few more, uh, few more for our guest. Right, Mike, you ready to go? Yes, I am. In fact, I've got a few questions about another subject, uh, that Ian had a chance to write for. Uh, we're talking Dan Severn. Then you write a book with Bugsy McGraw. You also got to help write the book. We mentioned this earlier, uh, Dylan Postle, who listeners will know as Hornswoggle. Hornswoggle, obviously a very different, uh, era from Bugsy McGraw, a very different style from Dan Severn. How did you get involved with his project? And what was it like working on a book like that? Cause his book is more, you know, his life story, and he's got some great comical stories in there because Hornswoggle has got a great sense of humor. So what was it like working on that book, and how did you get started with uh, that project? Okay, sure. I'll take those in reverse order. So as far as getting started on that project was concerned, the day after I wrapped with Dan Severn on assembling or at least recording the content for his book, I went to the gym for the first time in a long time. I was on the elliptical, and I queued up the latest edition of Stone Cold Steve Austin's podcast. Uh, Dylan had just been released by the WWE, and I was I was listening to this interview, and I could not stop laughing. And when he's talking about his indie wrestling career as Short Stack, the man, the myth, the midget, and I, I just said, "This is great." I didn't I didn't want the interview to end. I wanted to hear more, so. I left the gym. I went home. I found his booking email 
And I sent him an email and said, hey, I'm, uh, I'm working on Dan Severin's book right now. We hope to have it out in a few months. But I just listened to your interview on Stone Cold Steve Austin's podcast. I thought it was tremendous. And I think your story is book worthy. And I would love to help you put that out if you're interested. I sent the email. I went to take a shower. I got out of the shower. I checked my email. And he'd already replied and said, yeah, let's do it. So one week later, he and I started, I think, in fact, I think he was at some um, wrestling fan event and Severn was there. And he asked Severn about me and Severn said, yeah, you can trust him. This guy's great. And, and then we got going. Uh, as far as what it was like recording with him, it was fantastic. He was, he was always available when he said he was going to be available. And his story was was very interesting it was very it was very interesting it was very entertaining uh it was very encouraging and it was very inspirational it was it was a pleasure to work with him what were you know like i said very comical uh guy and he's got some great stories when you're working with him and he's telling you some of these stories because i've listened to a lot of his podcasts uh he did one on uh i think stories of briscoe and bradshaw where he tells a story about a chicken uh and all that and everybody's laughing during this when you're and he's telling you these stories and all that. I mean, obviously you're doing this for book content, but what were some of the stories that stuck out to you that were like really enjoyable and you know, how hard was it not to like, just want to laugh at some of his stories? Cause just when he tells things is great. You think the guy could be like, you know, stand up comedy. Well, well, who says, who says I didn't laugh? Uh, fortunately, it, it's not like <laughs> we were recording. It's, it's not like we were recording a podcast or doing a live show. So I was free to laugh as much as I wanted. The the story about his training, where he and his he and his friend, I think it was Weimer, they had to they had to go out for a run, and 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 Weimer had to take a dump, and so they knock on a random lady's door. Um, she allows she allows them to go in. Weimer clogs up the toilet, it floods, and then the two of them have to bolt out of there. Uh, I mean, I, I feel sorry for that poor lady, but and I'm ashamed to say that, that that story had me in stitches when Dylan was telling it to me. I was, I was taken aback by how resistant he was to the idea of doing midget matches. And he, he insists on, he insisted on using the term midget because, as opposed to little person because he says midget makes me money. Uh, but he was so resistant to he was so resistant to doing midget matches because he, he didn't want to be typecast as the comedic midget wrestler. He wanted to be seen as an undersized cruiserweight, like a tinier version of Rey Mysterio. And I just, I found that general antagonism toward terms uh, or, or t- toward those attempts to push him into the midget category. I just found that to be hilarious in general. Now, when you're working on his book and compared to Dan Severn and Bugsy McGraw, like I said, three different, three totally different people, three totally different eras, three totally different styles. You know, how do you piece together each book? Because, like I said, you know, Severn's more, you know, the serious side thing, mixed martial arts, the UFC. So he's, you know, taking this very serious guy as far as, you know, Bugsy, that's obviously the territory, the old school 
you know, kayfabe type of days. And then you got Hornswoggle, who's more your modern era WWE character style. How are you able to tell, you know, his story as compared to, you know, the other two? The biggest challenge, the, the biggest challenge with putting Hornswoggle's book together is that at the time he got released by the WWE, I think he was only 30 years old. So you, you have the benefit that he's got a, a solid recollection of his 10-year um, compressed wrestling career because he's just come out of it. And so he's able to tell stories. Uh, he's, he's able to recount certain events that, you know, given another three, five, and certainly 10, 20 years, he would have completely forgotten about all of those events. So it was, it was nice to be able to capture, uh, you know, at this pay-per-view, this is what happened behind the scenes. And at this next pay-per-view, the very next month, this is what was happening behind the scenes. And this is what my interaction with Snoop Dogg was like. And this is what my interaction with Ozzy Osbourne was like. Um, it's, it's great that he's, it, it's great that his recollections of all of those things are fresh. Uh, the, but the greatest challenge is that his career is still, his career is still ongoing. And when we got started <clears throat> in, when we got started in 2016, he, again, he'd just been released by the WWE, but Global Force Wrestling was starting up um, with Jeff Jarrett's promotion. Um, he was just getting booked. He, he was booked on their first few shows. Uh, I think it was uh, Kurt Hawkins who got him booked. And then as, as we're writing, like, oh, he got picked up by TNA. Okay, we have to include that in the book. And oh, he he attended WrestleMania weekend the following the year following his release, and he and he had a lot of interesting interactions there. Okay, that has to go in the book. So when someone's when some and and obviously he's running his own independent wrestling promotion, and we and it it went away and then it was resurrected, and those details have to go in the book to some degree. And so when you're writing a story about oh and. I see more things keep popping into my mind as we're writing the book. He had the death of his grandfather, who was always this uh, tremendous role model for him and who, who influenced him in countless ways in the trajectory of his life and his affection and reinforcement of Dylan's dream. You have all of these events that are unfolding in real time as we're writing and at some point, you, you have to put your foot down and say, okay, we need to stop right here. And anything that happens after this point, we kind of need to ignore it because we have to get something, we, you have to get something to print. So to summarize, if you have a wrestler or a subject whose career is still um, unfurling in a, or un ongoing in a major way, then... You, you just have to make a decision on where to draw the line so that you can actually get something to print because it's, had we not made that decision, we could still be going and this thing could be 600 pages long. So maybe book number two might be somewhere down the road. Yeah, possibly. If he's interested, I wouldn't say no to him. Now, one thing uh, before we move on to uh, your newest project, uh, he speaks very highly of the two gentlemen that he asked to write 
the forewords for his book. Did you have any um, anything in helping put that together, or was that all uh, him? That was that was entirely him. I certainly had no I certainly had no connection to Kofi Kingston or Kurt Hawkins. Those are those are his two best friends in the industry. So of course he had he had all of the access there. I was actually pushing for him to try to get John Cena to do the forward to the book. And 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 I don't know what the and I don't know if he even made the attempt because he really wanted to get his two best friends involved and and that's what we wound up with. And it's it's surprising because at the time we at, at the time we were working on the book before the publisher picked it up, he said, um, "I want Kofi to do the forward." And I'm thinking, "Okay, great, Kofi, a highly visible WWE wrestler, that's wonderful." Well, Kofi submitted the forward for the book, and then the book wasn't released for another two years. And at the time the book was released, Kofi was a WWE champion so a, a lot happened by the time we from the time we originally submitted the book to the time it actually went to print now the newest project you're working on we've touched on a little bit is you're working with brian blair on his autobiography uh obviously this is going to be more of you know, a territory style one also you know his run with the wwf uh what's it been what's the kind of the status on you know that project and working with brian on that because obviously we know the you know the terrible tragedy that just happened here within the last couple of weeks. Brian's book is ninety nine percent done. Um, I would have loved to have said it was one hundred percent done, and we thought it was one hundred percent done. But unfortunately, the the tragic murder of his son about two weeks ago has has certainly changed some things and shifted the timeline. And of course. We have to adjust some of the content, but, but compared to the, the tragedy of his son losing his life, it's absolutely nothing in terms of an inconvenience. It isn't even worth mentioning as far as having to go in and, and make a few edits and maybe add a few more pages to address this tragedy. Now, how has it been working with Brian on the book? Because obviously, you know, the Florida area, and then obviously we all, everybody remembers him as one half of the Killer Bees and the WWF. I actually got to see them wrestle live back in my hometown in a uh, small little town in Eureka, California. They uh, they came in for a house show back in like 88. So I've had the chance to see, uh, you know, Brian in action. But what was it like working with him and getting to tell his story? Well, you, you talk about Hornswoggle having funny stories. Brian's book... I'm not just, I'm speaking first as a pro wrestling fan. Brian's book has the funniest collection of wrestling road stories that I've ever listened to. I'm not alone in that sentiment. My buddy Oliver Bateman, my buddy Oliver Bateman uh, of The Ringer read the book and in his review for the cover, he says exactly that. This is the best, this is the greatest collection of wrestling road stories that I've ever read. Brian is underrated as far as humor. Brian is underrated as far as talent, and Brian is underrated as far as just this general appreciation for the industry. And I think a lot of people are going to be surprised by the quality of the content and the quality of the stories in the book. It was, it was an absolute privilege to get to work on the project with them. And I think people also minimize 
the the extent of his career. But that happens that happens a lot, unfortunately, where there is no match footage available. Uh, people remember, um, you, Glenn. I think you mentioned it earlier. Bugsy is remembered primarily as a comedic wrestler because the surviving footage of him mm-hmm. takes place in world class and then Crockett in the eighties. So we're getting we're getting post injury Bugsy. We're not getting him as the brute where he was the where he was the flagship guy wrestling in all star wrestling in Vancouver for Gene Kaniski and voted as one of the the top entertainers in Canada during that year. Brian, in, in his book, he tells the most, the most entertaining stories about working and wrestling in Japan that I've, ever, that I've ever read. He and Paul Orndorff were joined at the hip for almost 10 years, starting from the time that they were training in the sportatorium I love how there's the overlap because you have the sportatorium in Dallas, obviously, but 106 North Albany. See, I don't, I don't want to screw this up. I think that was also referred to as the sportatorium, but the wrestlers referred to it as the dungeon, and obviously that name overlaps with the dungeon in Calgary. But uh, that's where Brian trained, and that's where Paul Orndorff trained as well. And they were joined at the hip, like I said, for 10 years. And in lieu of a Paul Orndorff autobiography, which unfortunately we're never going to get for obvious reasons. This is the most, um, Brian's book at this point is 470 plus pages, and it is the most the most thorough collection of Paul Orndorff stories, road stories, fun behind the scenes stuff, training stories, and match stories that you're ever, you're ever going to get. So in lieu of a Paul Orndorff autobiography, Brian's autobiography is going to to be the best you get to do in that regard. So for our listeners who are interested in uh, picking up copies of your books and learning more about these gentlemen, uh, where can they go reach out and find your books? Oh, they are. They are all available on Amazon.com. If you go in there and you type into the search box, Ian Douglas, the two S's, D-O-U-G-L-A-S-S, then you'll, you'll find all those books. You'll find the author page. And if you go on Facebook, I just put the page up last week, but if you type in Truth Be Told, the autobiography of B. Brian Blair, that page is up if you want updates on when the book will be released. That is your best bet. For Ian Douglas and the Grizzle Vet Mike McCurdy, this has been Wrestling Memories Then and Now.